Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What drives a son to kill? Welcome to the first episode of Invisible Choir, a true crime podcast where we explore the truly depraved minds behind some of the most heinous murders. I'm your host, Michael Ojibwe. Before we dig into our first case, I want to welcome you to a new breed of intelligent true crime storytelling. We'll take you deeper into the cases and peel back the layers of truth around some absolutely terrifying crimes. So strap in for a wild ride, and remember to never whistle at night, because there may be more lurking in the shadows than darkness. November 28th. 2016, 9.15 and 25 seconds p.m. Uh, hello? Hello. Um, I would like to confess to a murder. At first, the sounds are easily mistakable, as if a young, stuttering child has phoned a prank call into Montreal's 911 dispatch. Uh... I'm near a parking garage. Do you need to be more specific? I need an address or intersection. I'm going to find a street name. Oh, and, uh, oh, and, uh, an address. Oh, that might work. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how is my phone? Oh, um, 1731 Mikado. Does that work? What's the name of the street? Mikado? 911 operator Mark Liveska quickly realizes there is no Mikado Street anywhere in Montreal, just a small Japanese restaurant on the city's northeast side. Concerned, he prompts the boy to keep talking. And uh, who, who did you kill? Uh, my mom and dad. Okay. What do they? Uh, what do they live? They live in Ottawa. They live in Ottawa. Yes, sir. Okay. His claims seem a stretch at best. How could someone with such a timid, childlike presence possibly commit murder? And who is this mystery caller, anyways? Hey, what's your name? My name is Cameron. Cameron, Cameron Rogers. How old are you? I'm 20, 22. 22. Mm. Uh, oh, here, here's the street. Um, Ontario mm-hmm. and Savoie. Okay. Are you going to stay on the corner? Yes, sir. Okay, okay. I will stay so on what, the what are you wearing? Uh, the, the clothing? Oh, I'm wearing an orange um, puffy coat and orange mitts with jeans. Okay, so an uh, orange coat and you're 22. Okay. Yes, uh, and I have a hoodie on. Liveska confirms what the man is wearing and alerts him that police are on the way. And then he promptly terminates the call. No keeping him on the line until police arrive. No additional inquiry into the nature of his alleged crime. Just a rather mundane 3 minute and 24 second 911 call that would set the city of Ottawa into grief. 
Ottawa police are currently investigating into two bodies that were found in Ottawa's West End Monday night in what is believed to be a double homicide. Police say a man was in custody in Montreal Monday evening who was later identified as Cameron Rogers, 22, of Ottawa and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. The victims turned out to be his parents and his father worked for the Ottawa Citizen for a number of years. Residents in the community were shocked to hear the news when they woke up Tuesday morning. It's a kid's tale as old as time. The story of the acorn and the oak tree. Made popular by various children's authors over the years, the general principle remains the same. The acorn, tiny in appearance, is larger than life with potential. Everything it will ever be is already tucked, folded, and neatly packaged by nature inside of that tiny little shell. Over the years, if nurtured appropriately, that seed will grow into a towering and powerful mighty oak tree. The metaphor is often used to reflect on the innocence of childhood. The potential of the child, like the acorn, is limitless, bound and confined only by the barriers put in place by the parents or one's surroundings. If cared for, protected, and nurtured with love, that child will eventually grow into a caring, loving, and productive adult. It's a life cycle that plays out naturally across species, and a debate that has many confused and curious. Which actually matters more, nature or nurture? Is it our genetic predisposition which guides our behavior, or the environments in which we were raised and surrounded in throughout childhood. For 22-year-old Cameron Rogers, who now sits in a Montreal police interrogation room, the questions have only just begun. Okay, so how are you doing? Good. Good, you're okay? Yeah. All right, do you remember my name? Uh, no. You just met me for the first time, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So my name is Teresa. Okay. I'm with the Ottawa Police, and I'm a police officer, and I work in the Major Crime Unit. Mm -hmm. All right? So I met you for the very first time today, right? Mm -hmm. Just a few minutes ago, you were in your cells. I was with mm -hmm. another officer, and uh, we escorted you here, and we told you to bring your blanket, because as you can tell, it's a little chilly in this room, right? Mm -hmm. Ottawa homicide investigator Teresa Kelm enters a claustrophobically small Montreal police interview room on Tuesday, November 29, 2016. Cameron Rogers positions himself at the small table in the rear corner of the room. He is wearing a disposable white police-issued undergarment complete with slip-on booties covering both feet. He settles in his chair under a tightly wrapped, bright blue cell blanket. It is the morning after he first phoned 911, just nine days after killing his parents, Dave Rogers and Meryl Gletty Rogers. Do you understand that you're under arrest right now? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do you believe you're under arrest for? Killing my parents. Okay. So that's called, it's first degree murder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so when people are under arrest, they have rights and it's my duty to explain them to you. It is immediately clear that investigator Kelm is caught off guard by his youthful, almost playful demeanor. He's not acting like a man who just viciously attacked and killed two people, let alone his parents, 
just the week before. Cameron, how old are you? I'm 22. You're 22. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what have are you in school? Or I, I I was in school. Okay. What were you studying? Uh, electromechanical engineering technology. No. Uh, electromechanical engineering robotics technician. Wow. And how long have you been studying that? Um, I was in that for the first year this year, but I came out of another one from like for the past two years I was in uh, uh, um, I was in mechanical engineering technol technology, but then I changed okay. for this year into the first one I mentioned. Good, good. And what, what are, were your plans? What did you want to do with that degree? I didn't want that degree. Oh, you didn't? No. So why were you taking it? Because my parents told, told me to take it. Oh, okay. And um, why were they so keen on you taking that? Mm -hmm. uh, um, half of the problem was probably uh, because I didn't say anything else. Like, I didn't, like, I mean, I, I didn't say another plan for, okay. the, the, you know, like, I think. Does that okay, make sense? so you didn't have a plan, so therefore they gave you a plan? Yeah. Dave Rogers and Meryl Gleddy Rogers were incredibly loving and caring parents who adopted Cameron into their Ottawa home shortly after he was born in 1994. Dave was a reporter for the Ottawa Citizen, a local daily paper, for nearly 37 years and was known for his cheerful, quiet demeanor and his ability to produce quality stories under pressure. He covered everything from general death inquiries to the story of a local man who twice attempted to use a large stuffed animal to legally traverse the carpool lane. He was an only child. Merrill had her own fascinating story as well. She was one of four children and grew up in a Canadian Air Force family. She once shared in a report that in 1973, she was accidentally inserted into an all-male combat training unit as a second lieutenant and spent an entire summer learning how to, as she described it, throw hand grenades, fire rifles, and learn how to become a platoon commander. She later went on to work as a training consultant for the Department of National Defense, designing leadership curriculum that nearly 6,000 people, both civilian and military, have completed to this day. She was described by close friends and family as unfailingly supportive. There were no signs that anything was wrong, nothing to indicate the tragedy to come. Good, okay. Now who's the closest person to you, would you say? Mm, my dad. Your dad, yeah, okay. All right, and do you have any friends or anything? I have friends at, uh, at school. Okay. Um, that I know from school and that I know from past jobs. Okay, all right. So what's been going on in your life then? things been going for you? Like, in what way? In what way? Like, were you happy with the way things were going? Or? Uh, I, I don't know if I was happy with how I was going with school because I was doing a pro a program that I didn't like. Right, yeah. And, and And also, um, I wasn't really being able to get a job because my parents would insist that uh, I would have to work for them. For them? Yeah. And what, what do you mean by that? Like, 
around the house. Okay. Okay, how'd that make you feel? Not good. Not good, yeah. So they, they didn't want you to go get a job outside the house? So they just wanted you working at the house? Yeah. And okay. I wouldn't actually get money because they would just say that they'd owe me money. So I actually didn't have any money. That must have been hard. Yeah. So how did you manage then, like, if you wanted to go out or if you wanted to do something? Uh, well, uh, if I would want to use money, they would have to approve of it. Okay. They would have to approve of it. Or anything for that matter, according to Cameron. He begins weaving a tale for investigator Kelm of just how overbearing and controlling Dave and Merrill allegedly were behind closed doors. No unhealthy snacks were allowed in the home, and a strict bedtime was enforced every single night. They wouldn't allow Cameron to get a job or earn his own money. To him, it was as if they stripped his entire existence of freedom. It was no way for a 22-year-old man to live, but surely not enough to warrant murder. Investigator Kelm still cannot wrap her mind around what triggered him to turn violent against the two people he held closest in all the world. What would finally set him off? I've been working in the homicide unit since um, 2009, and I've never seen anybody that's reported it to the police the way you did, okay? And that tells me that you're somebody with a, a conscience and, and realized what you had done and decided that you needed to um, do the right thing, all right? What happened before is happened, right? We can't, we can't, you can't do anything more about it. But what you do have control over is today and tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about how the closest person to you is your father, that tells me that there's, there's a reason why this happened, okay? And we want to understand why that happened. Okay, like w what, what set you off? I know there was a lot of pressure going on, like there was your the schooling, you know, having to do work at home, not being able to get any money. Something, something triggered you to go off. Just as sure as the acorn that falls from the tree, occasionally there are bad seeds planted. Seeds which, no matter how much we water them or how much we nurture them, they just do not grow. Could Cameron Rogers be that bad seed? Surrounded by loving, caring parents who supported him at every juncture in life, yet his responses aren't making any sense. His behavior is anything but rational. He just doesn't have a good reason to be upset. And he sure as hell doesn't have a reason to murder. But there is more to his story. Aside to him that Dave and Merrill allegedly kept private. You see, Cameron was different. As a boy, what started as an incurable, rambunctious energy quickly evolved to progressively more and more bizarre compulsions, 
Dave Rogers confided in a coworker that not only did he believe his son was potentially suffering from some form of undiagnosed mental illness, but also that from a young age, he was in some way prone to violence. Ultimately, we're left asking the question, why? Why did a man just 22 years of age boil quietly in anger over his parents' allegedly over-controlling ways to the point he snapped and killed them? Why didn't he just leave? Why didn't he talk to them? Just tell them that he wasn't interested in that college program or that he wanted a job, that he wanted more friends. And then it becomes readily apparent. He doesn't seem to have the answers to these questions himself. And what, what caused you to, to just do this? I don't know, it was, it was like, like it was, I guess the spur of the moment, like it was, it just, like I, I it was just, I, I don't know what made me do it, it was just, like, I, I, I don't even know why I did it, even not that, I think back to it now, I don't even know why I chose to do it. What else were they were they doing that was adding to this stress? I don't know. I mean, other than no money and having to do go into a program for three years that I didn't want to go into. Um, I, I I don't know like what else there would be. Mm -hmm. like, I can't think of anything. What else was missing? Do you find in your your life that you could attribute to well I, I might have felt or I might have thought at the time that I was lonely but then mm -hmm. after I killed them I didn't really feel lonely well I felt more lonely because anyway it's yeah. irrelevant but I mean mm -hmm. realized that it was the wrong choice but anyway Cameron's seemingly cavalier attitude is difficult to understand at best he glosses over the fact repeatedly that both of his parents are now gone and that he is responsible. Though he may never fully understand why, just how he did it is truly incomprehensible. It was uh, involving mul uh, one or two knives and, and, and a stick. And a stick, okay. And where did you kill them? In our kitchen. In your kitchen, okay. All right. And, um, what was going on right before you killed them? I was chopping melon. Sorry? I was chopping, chopping mel melon. Melon? Yeah. Okay. And where were your parents in relation to you at that point? Uh, my mom was doing something else in the kitchen. Okay. And my dad was somewhere else in the house. Okay. And then what happened? Do, do I have to talk about this? I don't want to talk about this. Okay, well, why don't we talk about something else for for a while, okay? I, I said, I know that's, that's upsetting you. As if the details are simply too fresh or too graphic to relive, Cameron redirects investigator Kelm away from the explicit details of the murders. Though he has remained relatively calm and complacent until now, he begins to grow more agitated. The aggressively loud clanging sounds coming from the hallway immediately outside the interview room 
seemed to, in some way, be triggering him emotionally. How did they get to the outside? I, I, I put them there. You put them there, okay. And when did you put them there? Um, after they died. Okay. Right. I, I, I didn't want, like, I was, I, I, I didn't want, like, their, my mom's brothers or any friends to come and see them like that. Okay. Well, that was, that was good of you. Clearly you were concerned for them, for the family members not seeing them, eh? Okay. And how did you get them out to the back? I had to, uh, uh, well, I, I, I dragged my mom in a tarp. Okay. And then I put my dad in a suitcase okay. and then pulled him out. Okay. And how did you get him in a suitcase? Well, I sort of rolled him into it. Okay. All right. Did he? Did you have to do anything to get him into the suitcase? Or? Well, it wasn't like a perfect fit. Like I didn't like make him like fit. Okay. Like it, it wasn't like. Okay. All right. And how long did you remain in the house after the? A week. A week. Okay. And where were they for that one week? Well, um, for a day they were wherever they got killed. Okay. And then uh, after that um, was spent taking them out to the backyard and then cleaning up a little bit. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, blood all over the place. Cameron explains that while chopping melons with a large chef's knife in the kitchen, he got the idea to kill his parents. That the idea just came to him. So he continued to chop, waging an internal debate with himself. To do it or not do it. Until after nearly 50 minutes, he decided to go through with it. He went outside to the family garage to retrieve a handmade wooden sword he spent the entire summer carving. He then came back into the kitchen where his mother, Meryl, was fast at work preparing vegetables for the week's meals and hit her over the head with the makeshift sword multiple times before grabbing a knife from the counter and stabbing her in the back. Her terrifying screams immediately drew concern from his father. When I did my mom, he came running and then I did him. Okay. And um, how long did it take? What do you mean? Like before your mom, like how long did you? Well, my dad didn't take very long, but my mom took a long time. Okay. And, and, and it was really hard because she was in pain and I wanted it to stop. <laughs> and I couldn't make it stop. And then I felt so bad because because she was in pain, and, and I wanted her not to be in pain, but, but I couldn't stop it, mm-hmm. and it went for the whole night. And what? And she, it took the whole night for her to die. Oh, and how, and how do you, how do you know that it took the whole night? Well, I don't know exactly, but I mean, I went to my room, and, and, and she was, Still in pain, like here, but then in the morning, it was, it was done. Okay, and can I ask you something? Yeah. 
Can I ask a question? Why is it then after when you realize she was in pain, why didn't you call 911? Well, well, I knew it was too late. And what do you mean by it was too late? The wounds were too bad. In John Steinbeck's popular American novel, Of Mice and Men, one of the main characters, Lenny, dreams of a time far off in the future, on a farm, when he can pet and tend to the rabbits, when he can love them, cherish them, and feel their soft fur. But in the end, he loses control of his emotions and inadvertently kills them, as he seemingly always does. In the story, Lenny is made out to be a simple-minded man who is cared for and looked after by his friend and guardian, George. The story is imprinted on the consciousness of multiple generations. Many of us have read it as part of the assigned curriculum in elementary school growing up. But the parallels between Lenny and Cameron are soon apparent, because like Lenny, after killing the very thing he loved most in the world, Cameron is overcome with sadness and regret, as if he had no control of his actions and only realized the permanence of them after the killings. Okay, what did he say when he came in? Well, he was scared for her. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and then it was quicker okay. for him. Okay, now you talked about a stick. Yeah. Who did you use the stick on? I think it was both. On both? And what part of the bodies did you hit them with? I think Sorry, it was the head. The head? Okay. Yeah. Right. The stick broke. The stick broke on who? I don't remember exactly. Okay. All right. And there were two knives involved? Yeah, I think and, so. Okay. Where did you get the knives? The kitchen. In the kitchen? Okay. And um, which knife did you use on which? Person. I don't remember. You don't remember? Okay. But I think I remember this. there was a smaller one that was only used on my mom. Okay. Cameron later recalled that after striking his mother on the head from behind, the wooden sword broke after the first few blows. Though he mortally wounded her, she lay there on the kitchen floor, alive, for many hours after the initial attack, crying out in agony throughout the late evening and into the next morning. At some point, Cameron, believing her injuries were too severe to survive, gouged out her right eye in an attempt to kill her. She didn't succumb to her injuries until the following morning. What were you thinking when you were doing this to them? No, like, like when I was moving them? No, when you were actually stabbing them and hitting them. I wasn't, I don't remember exactly what I was thinking, but I don't think I was thinking anything. Maybe it was just adra adrenaline or something. Okay. Or just Were you feeling um, angry? Were you feeling... I don't think I was feeling angry. Maybe, no, actually. I don't think I was feeling actually any anger. Yeah. Okay. Which sounds actually really bad. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, like, like, and I think that's, that, that's what I was saying, that, like, it took me, like, 15 minutes of going back and forth of thinking to do it and then not thinking I shouldn't do it and you know then I, f I finally did it but it was it was like I don't know how to explain it it was, mm -hmm. it was 
I didn't. I wasn't like out of anger. Like I don't think. So I, mean, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. Like I don't know how to explain it. it was like, like I, I think, like it's not that I wasn't doing it for anger, but at the moment when I when I did it, I wasn't feeling really angry. Okay. Be, um, maybe it was just the fact that it took me like fifth. Maybe at the beginning I was angry, but then doing the fifth, the fifty minutes of about to do it and then not doing it. And then, like, I mean, like, when I say not doing it, I mean, like, checking out. During the course of the interview, Cameron explains to investigator Kelm that he has, quote, slight autism and that he has since stopped taking his medication for the diagnosis after turning himself in the evening before. He explained that the only changes in his behavior when taking the medicine is that it helped correct poor coordination. But other than that, Nothing worth mentioning. What was Did you have an argument with your parents, or? Well, I mean, the whole upstanding or not upstanding, the whole, the whole, like disagree, disagreement about school and work and all that was just hanging over me. And I mean, I guess, like I mean, we've had arguments before, okay, and heated, yelling ones. And I guess just at that time when the cloud broke, I was. Shopping a melon. She continues asking Cameron why. What could have possibly been so bad as to set him off, triggering him to act out in such a violent, deadly way? While it was clear that he did, in fact, consider his actions, again, for nearly 50 minutes before actually retrieving the sword from the garage, he never really gives a good explanation as to why. He was not particularly angry or upset, just casually thinking about killing his parents. With no apparent motive guiding his behavior, many have speculated that his being on the autism spectrum was in some way partly to blame, that it somehow caused him to act out in an otherwise uncharacteristically violent way. But research doesn't support the claims that autism in any way causes violence. In fact, people on the autism spectrum are actually more likely to be victims of violent crime. They are in no way disproportionately represented among those who commit violent acts, let alone murder. And many actually find peace and comfort in the type of rigidly structured and rule-driven environments that actually seem to have most upset Cameron Rogers. If there was any question as to whether or not Cameron knew what he did was wrong, the answer is crystal clear. After hiding away in his upstairs bedroom throughout the evening, listening to his mother writhing in agony on the kitchen floor, he eventually returned to clean up and hide their bodies. Your mom, you said you dragged her on the tarp? Yes. Did you, where did you, when, where, where in the house or outside did you first put her on the tarp? I put her on the tarp in the kitchen. Oh, in the kitchen. I brought I the tarp in. And gotcha. Then I, yeah. Okay, and where was the tarp? It was outside. Like, I mean, it was like okay. we have a garden, so we have tarps. Oh, I see. Okay, so all right. So I just took a tarp. And your dad, how yeah. did you... It was the suitcase. Okay. It was, like, par partially in a suitcase. It wasn't, like, completely. It was, like, sticking out. Yeah, it was hard. Okay. And why did you put him in the suitcase? I didn't want to drag him. When you said clean up, 
What room had to be cleaned up? The kitchen. The kitchen. Okay, is that the only room yeah. that had to be cleaned up? Okay. Yeah. And where's the knife? Um, I, I put the knife, uh, the two, I think it was two, two, I think it was two knives uh, um, in a plastic bag with the stick that had broken. So I put those in the plastic bag and I put it in the black box, which is in the garage. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, um, and what did you do then for that whole week then in the house? I just stayed in my room. Okay. Because uh, um, I like the what I was mostly going to run away mm -hmm. from Ottawa. Okay. Um, I was hoping to go to the U.S., but since that didn't work out, I got stuck in Montreal. Cameron's uncle Graham, his mother Meryl's brother, phoned the family home the afternoon of the gruesome murders. Cameron actually answered, his mother still lying on the floor suffering, and explained to his uncle that his parents were ill. They had all planned to meet later in the evening to celebrate Meryl's mother's 91st birthday, but Meryl, Dave, nor Cameron would ever make the dinner. It was likely Cameron's last chance to correct the wrongs he had started to confide in his uncle, to phone police and get help for his mother, but he did not. Instead, he coldly waited for many hours until his mother died on the floor there next to his father. Dave Rogers died almost immediately, suffering multiple stab wounds to the back, one of them puncturing his lung. He likely never knew what hit him as he tended there to his dying wife. The next day, Cameron crudely wrapped Merrill's body in a dirty garden tarp and stuffed his father into a suitcase, dragging their bodies out into the backyard and into a shallow ditch between the shed and fence. Friends from the family church even came to visit the Rogers, worried after Cameron had told them they were all suffering from the flu the previous Sunday via telephone. His mother, likely still alive as he opened the door just a few inches to explain them away from the truth, lying there, dying on the kitchen floor. Cameron stayed in the family home nearly a week, the bodies of Dave and Merrill Rogers decomposing in the backyard. After deciding he had to leave to run away from his crimes, Cameron stole $140 from his mother's purse and father's wallet, stole their van, and headed towards the U.S.-Canada border to make his escape. He was ultimately turned away, however, because he could not present the appropriate visa after explaining that he intended to live in the United States to start a new life. Though he was initially charged and tried with two counts of first-degree murder in 2018 after turning himself in, Cameron revealed to his attorneys just two days prior to the trial's scheduled conclusion that he had been previously sexually assaulted and abused by his father. The explosive allegations eventually triggered a mistrial, but Cameron later admitted that he made up the claims out of desperation. He accepted a plea deal, pleading guilty to two counts of second-degree murder. He received two concurrent life sentences and will be eligible for parole after 20 years 
at the age of 44. What he did was absolutely heartless. And, you know, I fear for the day he is released. I spoke to Cameron when he was in the middle of killing my sister. My sister had asked me to call between two and four. He started the attack at 11 a.m. And um, according to Cameron's own testimony to Detective Kelm, Meryl was still alive. She was moaning. She was moaning on the floor of the kitchen. He gouged out her right eye. She had multiple stab wounds and she was in great pain, moaning on the ground. I was chatting with Cameron on that phone in the kitchen, I believe, uh, is where he was. And he was very calmly telling me everything was fine. Was Cameron Rogers a cold, callous, and calculated murderer? Or just a child trapped in a man's body? Someone who didn't fully understand or comprehend the finality of his own actions? After violently attacking and killing the only two people in the world who seemed to care about him, he repeatedly asked investigator Kelm to get him toilet paper for his cell. After wrapping up the interview and leaving the room, Cameron, in one final demonstration of his inability to control even the simplest of his own actions, impulsively steals a box of tissues from the table, tucking it under his blanket. And then, after only a moment, perhaps realizing he was reminded numerous times that he was being recorded, puts it back on the table as he hears Investigator Kelm returning. If only he could bring back Dave and Merrill so easily. So what ultimately drives a son to kill? We may never know in the case of Dave Rogers and Merrill Gletty Rogers, because their voices have been silenced by their own son, and he can't seem to answer the question either. I got problems on problems on problems on problems on problems on problems I solve them. I run through the money, the pressure be calling, left on my blessings, I feel like I'm falling, the birdie is back, tell me I'm garbage, I'm going through something, that's why I ain't calling, phone and progression, it's all that I wanted, the phone and affection, I summon and dub it, cause I got problems on problems on problems on problems on problems on problems I solve them, I run through the Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe, and visit invisiblechoir.com to learn about our Patreon program, Invisible Choir Premium, which brings you additional episodes and bonus content for just a few dollars per month. 